Hello and welcome to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer, a series featuring conversations with experts to share recent market developments, key insights and strategic inputs from around the globe. Greetings, ladies and gentlemen. Today's Monday, the 25th of September. I'm the head of research in Asia at Bank Julius Baer. My name is Mark Matthews and welcome to our weekly Beyond Markets update. I'll be talking about the Treasury market in the United States the labor unrest and the prospect of a government shutdown there. I'll talk about Japan, which is doing well, Europe, which isn't doing well, and why, despite all the problems in the world, we should expect a nice stock market rally in the last quarter of this year, which, by the way, is just five days away from the beginning. So to start with the Treasury market, the 10-year Treasury yield is at an uncomfortably high 4.46% as of this Monday morning on the 25th of September here in Singapore. It's just not convinced that the inflation fight is done. That's certainly not good news for anyone, including the United States government, where the national debt crossed the $33 trillion mark last week. But something that does like the higher treasury yield is the dollar. And the dollar index is now just a tad below 106. That's the highest it's been since March. Of course, the dollar also likes it when other countries' economies are doing even worse than the United States. European purchasing managers' indices were reported on Friday. They're clear evidence, unfortunately, that higher energy prices, higher borrowing costs, waning demand from China are driving Europe into a recession. Manufacturing PMIs were 44.2 for the UK, France was 43.6, Germany at 39.8. To recall, 50 is the level that separates expansion from contraction. 39.8 is a long way from 50. In fact, it's the same level Germany's manufacturing PMI was at in the first half of 2020, back when there were all the lockdowns during the initial phase of the pandemic. Hamburg Commercial Bank wrote, Germany has entered once again into contraction. Our nowcast for manufacturing production, which includes the PMI figures, is hinting at a third quarter GDP drop of 1% quarter on quarter. Well, to put that in perspective, The consensus is looking for GDP in the United States to grow by 1.9% in the third quarter. So those are simply terrible numbers out of Europe, and it's kind of surprising the European Central Bank raised rates two weeks ago. But the Bank of Japan didn't do anything when it met on Friday, and Governor Ueda said, I'll quote him now, we have yet to foresee inflation stably and sustainably achieving our price target. That's why we must patiently maintain ultra-loose monetary policy end of quote. Which is also kind of surprising, because the target is 2%, and inflation in Japan has been above that since May. In fact, core inflation was 4.3% as of last month. So it's quite obvious the Bank of Japan wants to keep rates low for as long as possible to let the economy run hot and get some real inflation embedded into that economy. Which is bad for the yen, Versus the dollar, it's at 148.4. That's a low not seen since 1990. But measured against a broad basket of currencies, adjusted for inflation, the yen is in fact even lower than it was in 1970. That makes Japan very competitive as an exporter of high-end manufactured goods. And the inflation it stirs up also stirs up animal spirits in a country that's been asleep for many decades. On that note, last Thursday, Toshiba announced it was delisting 
after having been listed on the stock market for 74 years. A private equity company called JIP is taking it over for a 21% premium to the last traded price. Japan is the only market in Asia that's seen growth in mergers and acquisitions this year. But going back to the United States, on Wednesday last week, the Federal Reserve came out with a new bunch of forecasts, and its forecasts for interest rates were higher than the market expected. So the next day, Thursday, the ETF that tracks the return of treasuries with remaining maturities greater than 20 years fell 2.6% in just one day, its largest decline in 20 weeks. Of course, when the price goes down, the yield goes up. The 10-year Treasury yield at 4.46% is just 29 basis points from touching the average yield since the year 1790, which is 4.75%. Yes, for Treasuries, believe it or not, the data goes back that far. You'd figure with all the technological improvements since the year 1790 that are naturally deflationary, and the sophistication of the financial world today compared to before, that rates should be lower, and yet they're not. Already, that 10-year Treasury yield is as high as it's been since 2007. Back then, in 2007, the Federal Reserve was quite sanguine. The then-chairman, Ben Bernanke, said in February of that year, and I'll quote him, inflationary pressures appear to have abated somewhat and a waning of the temporary factors that boosted inflation in recent years will probably help foster a continued edging down of core inflation. End of quote. The average forecast of Federal Reserve officials back then showed a Goldilocks economy that was neither too hot with inflation nor too cold with rising unemployment. Bernanke said it was on track for a soft landing. Well, he jinxed that soft landing, of course, because 2008 was anything but a soft landing. So if we fast forward to today, Larry Summers, who was Treasury Secretary at the end of the Clinton administration, one of the first people to say inflation was more than just transitory two years ago, was on television last week. And he said, I'll quote him here, people are just a little too optimistic right now. And I think the Fed's caught into that optimism. It's more likely than not that we're either going to get surprised on the higher inflation side or on the weak growth side, end of quote. And he used an analogy of when President Ronald Reagan fired all the air traffic controllers who were striking for higher wages back in 1981. That had a very large effect on the psychology of workers, Mr. Summers said. So today, the recent highly publicized labor conflicts and potential for large wage hike settlements are going to give a lot of workers in a lot of places some pretty big ideas, Mr. Summers said. And there is an idea among economists that inflation always comes in two waves. First, there's a demand-pull wave, and then there's a cost-push wave. Maybe we're seeing the beginning of the cost-push wave, with all the strikes asking for higher wages. Over 300,000 American workers have been on strike so far this year. It started with 7,000 nurses who went on strike in New York City in January. And then more than 3,000 Starbucks workers went on strike in June. The Teamsters won their 340,000 members at United Parcel Service, a new five-year contract that puts the average worker there at $49 an hour. That works out to nearly $102,000 a year. And on top of that, they get $50,000 in benefits. So they're now at the same pay grade as software developers. 
FedEx pilots are in a standoff with their company. Pilots at American Airlines, Delta, and United Airlines negotiated new job contracts earlier this year. Phillips 66's refinery in Illinois signed a new contract with its workers to avoid a strike. U.S. Steel is wrangling with the United Steel Workers Union. In Hollywood, the actors and writers are both on strike for the first time in 63 years, and of course, the most high-profile one of all is the strike organized by the United Auto Workers against Ford, General Motors, and Stellantis. Actually, for most of these people, higher compensation is long overdue, not for the management. General Motors' CEO pay is 34% higher than it was in 2019. She made $29 million last year. The average auto workers' pay has only gone up 6% since then. It would take one of them 362 years to make what the CEO made last year. Now they're asking for a 46% pay increase through 2027, which sounds huge. But even if inflation runs at just 2% per year for the next four years, it would only bring real hourly wages for auto workers back to 5% less than what they were in 2003. One other thing, apart from the strikes, that you'll probably hear people talking about is the possibility of a federal government shutdown. It's not a small possibility anymore. The odds are looking in excess of 50% because it doesn't look like there's any compromise there. They're arguing about all kinds of things. One of the big issues is Ukraine and its never-ending funding pit. But there's also the border, which illegal migrants are crossing since the policy to keep the border closed during COVID ended in July, so-called Title 42. Last year, already 2.8 million illegal migrants crossed that border. So in Chicago and New York, they're very visible now. And President Biden just granted 472,000 Venezuelans the legal status to stay and work in the United States. On the one hand, you could say it'll help with the labor shortage. On the other, it won't help inflation with higher rents. In any event, a government shutdown would mean about $6 billion off of GDP every week in the form of reduced pay for federal workers and delays in government spending. But actually, the 20 government shutdowns since 1976 lasted just nine days on average, and in 14 of them, the S&P was up a month later anyway. Even excluding those times when the S&P fell, the average of all 20 saw the S&P up 1.2% a month after the shutdown started. So going back to the Treasury market, one other similarity it has with 2007, apart from the fact the 10-year yield is at the same level it was then, is that the yield curve has been inverted, and it was inverted back then. By the way, that means when short-term treasury yields are higher than long-term treasury yields, something that's not supposed to happen. Since this summer, the yield curve has been clawing its way back to normal. That might sound like a good thing, but historically, it's when the so-called re-steepening is happening that the recessions come. Case in point, the yield curve inverted in 2006. The recession came in 2007. It's been the case in practically all of the previous yield curve inversions. And by the way, even though ours has been re-steepening, it's still as wide as it was back in 1928. It was only wider in 1974 and 1975 and 1981 and 1982. So to Larry Summers' point, maybe we do get surprised by weaker growth. Data from Moody's Analytics shows millennials and Generation Zs are increasingly missing their credit card payments. 
In fact, delinquencies are ticking up for everybody except people over the age of 70. And where the delinquency rates are now is where recessions happened in the past. Or, as Mr. Summers said, maybe we get surprised on the higher inflation side. So far, oil has been the only commodity going up. But previous waves in commodity prices were larger than the one we've seen so far. Since commodities troughed in April 2020, they're up 80%. Previous cycles in the last 100 years saw rises of at least 150%. Or maybe this really is a Goldilocks period. Not too hot, not too cold. Only time will tell. If we turn back to the markets, one thing the 10-year Treasury yield at 4.46% is doing is creating real competition for stocks. Granted, before the global financial crisis, it was quite common for the 10-year Treasury yield to be high. In fact, its average from 1962 to 2008 was 7%. And during that time, the S&P managed to return 10% per year. But for us who've been used to rates so low since the global financial crisis ended, it's something that takes getting used to. To end with the stock market, so far in September, the S&P's down 4.2%. The NASDAQ 100 is down 5.2%. Those are their largest monthly drawdowns since December last year when they fell 59 and 9.1% respectively. It shouldn't come as much of a surprise. The third quarter of the third year in a presidential cycle is among the weakest quarters in the cycle historically, up on average just 0.6%, higher only 60% of the time. And for the stock market to be down in September, that's also not unusual. September has been historically the worst month for the Dow Jones Industrials with an average loss of 1.2% over the last 100 years. But October, November, and December have historically been three of the best months of the year for the Dow Jones Industrials. And October, November, and December, in other words, the fourth quarter, is also typically the best quarter of the year for the S&P, especially if it rose 10% or more in the first three quarters of the year. In the years, the S&P rose 10% or more in the first three quarters of the year, the fourth quarter saw, on average, a 4.5% rise. Well, we still have five more days to go before the third quarter ends, but so far the S&P is up 12.5% this year. So unless we're down 2.5% this week, history favors a very nice year-end rally. This is Mark Matthews signing off for now. I wish you a great week ahead, and we'll speak with you again next week. Goodbye. You have been listening to Beyond Markets by Julius Baer. If you like what you've heard, please tell us by leaving a review and rating on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Subscribe to Beyond Markets on your favorite podcast player to stay up to date with our latest episodes. To learn more about Julius Baer, our people, our latest thinking, visit us at www.juliusbaer.com. We will be back with a brand new episode soon. The information and opinions expressed in this podcast constitute marketing material and are not the result of independent financial or investment research. Please refer to www.juliusbear.com slash legal slash podcast for further important legal information.